Leviticus 16, 29 to 34. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, neither the native nor the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord and from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. And you shall afflict yourselves. It is his statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of the meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded. This is the word of God. Well, we are finishing up book of Leviticus today in our brief overview of this book. We're going to move on to Second Peter. So if you want to get a head start, it's just three chapters. We're going to begin to look at that probably starting next week. But as we finish Leviticus today, my, my hope in going through this book, which is one of the more difficult books in all of Scripture, I think, for us to figure out how we apply it, where it applies to us today, I've said from the beginning that I think this book is, has to be understood in light of the fact that God is now dwelling in his people in the tabernacle, that he's trying to get them to form an identity as a people surrounded on his holiness, who he is as a holy God. And so as we look at all the things that seem mighty strange to us, the sacrifices, the feasts, and trying to figure out what that means to us, the priesthood. And then last week, we looked at these purity laws of both ritual and moral purity. And they end up centering in this chapter. And it's the one feast, particular day, that I think is the sort of capstone and centerpiece of the book. And, and it's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is Hebrew for Day of, day of Atonement. And as we look at this chapter, I want us to look at what I think it encapsulates, how God feels about us, about sin, about holiness, and about the way things really are. People are going to tell us in this world, they're going to give us a cultural narrative of the way things are. The Bible gives a narrative of the way things are, and we have to sit there and decide which narrative are we going to believe is true. And I think we'll see that very focused in the Day of Atonement. So, tabernacle living. We've been looking, when we looked at the sacrifices, we saw that every day of the year, sacrifices were made for sin. So that animals were sacrificed, blood was given because sin was serious and needed to be dealt with. And so they would bring, people would bring, as, as, as people sinned against the Lord, they would bring an offering. It would be sacrificed. We, we talked about animal sacrifice, talked about uh, you were given grain sacrifices. All sorts of things were given to continue to keep you in relationship with God. But over time, what would end up happening is that sin would build up in such a way that things you didn't ask for forgiveness for, 
Or, remember, we're always bringing these animals and they're being burned inside this tent where the holy God dwells. So something different happens one day a year. One day a year, God says, above all other days, this day, we're going to do something completely different. Because all the sacrifices were made and all the business was done in either the outer courts of this tent area with a fencing around it, or it was done, much of it was done in this holy place, an inside place. But God's presence, the actual presence of the Lord, dwelt over this mercy seat. It dwelt in this place where there was a thick curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies where God's presence was. So on this day and this day alone, one person, one man, the high priest, was permitted to come in. Let's look. If you've got your Bible, look at Leviticus chapter 16. And I want to look at verse 1 to give us the context that they had for looking at this day of atonement. This refers back to an event that happened several chapters earlier. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. That is what's usually referred to as the holy of holies, inside the veil, before the mercy seat that's on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. So, if you'll remember the story, these two sons of Aaron casually took fire that from a place they shouldn't have. They did it not God's way. They decided they knew better, and they went into God's presence They took what was unholy, took it into the holy place, and they were destroyed. And it wasn't that God, God takes no pleasure in the death of people and in the wicked, but holiness is an aspect, it is a character feature of God. And he says, look, I don't want you to be destroyed in my holiness. I don't want to have happen what happened to these two sons. So don't come casually, Aaron. Here's the way it's going to happen. And then he outlines for him how you're going to come in to my presence. And so essentially, he's to take, uh, it's like he gets a smoke machine ready. He takes uh, smoke off the altar area and he, he creates a large cloud of smoke in the holy place and the holy of holies, because to look directly at God was to be destroyed. So first you create this sort of smoke-filled area. And then you have a special garment, a white holy garment that's only used for this purpose. He bathes. The high priest alone bathes in a certain way, getting completely pure. He sacrifices a bull, a very expensive animal, for his own sin. He sacrifices a goat for the sins of the people, and there's blood everywhere inside here, sprinkled blood all over the place. And he The high priest, in the very presence of God, stands as a representative of the people to God, saying, God, for all the sin, known and unknown, that we have done, forgive us. And then he is able to then, as a representative of God to the people, declare that this uh, situation has now temporarily been rectified, that now things are right between man and God until the next sin was committed. And it begins again. And the next day, there's another sacrifice because 
our sin is perpetual. I don't know about you, but I haven't figured out a way to turn the sinless switch on and to stay there. But this was like a reset button. And then there's one other part of the ceremony that we'll talk about in a minute, which is completely different from anything else that happens. And it's a second goat that's taken, pure like the first. And the high priest and the leaders take and they place all of the sins of the people on this second goat that's not killed. And they send the goat out through the community. The community is gathered. They are in an attitude of repentance. They're in an attitude. They fast. Jews today, this is the high holy day. You fast on Yom Kippur. You spend 10 days prior contemplating the, the distance between holy God and sinful man. And here we are placing all the sins of the people Everything that we have done and will do, and they are taken by this goat, and this goat is banished out to the wilderness and passes in front of the community watching on this innocent animal all that you had done, and it's taken out, and that animal is never seen from again. It's banished to the wilderness. And this goat, this imagery, becomes something unlike anything else that's done in Israel, this second goat. What does the Day of Atonement teach us? What does the book of Leviticus teach us? When the people of Israel came out of Egypt, one of the things is their identity had been shaped by being a people in slavery for generations. And one of the things we see in the nation of Israel as they're out in the wilderness is that they didn't take sin very seriously. That their grumbling, their faithlessness, the way they quickly turn on Moses, the way Aaron quickly builds a golden calf, the way idolatry is riddled in their lives, the way they acted in their sexuality, the way they acted in all sorts of ways, tells, told God that they didn't understand what sin did to them and the separation it provided, and that sin was a serious offense. And the question for us as we look to apply this is, are we different? Do, do we believe? Is sin really a problem? I mean, in a general sense, maybe it's a problem. But is it really a problem? Dick Halverson, who was the, um, the late rector of Fourth Presbyterian in Bethesda and the chaplain of the Senate, said something that I think was very interesting. He said, the original sin, true sin, is not just murder, adultery, or any other action we call sin. The original sin was and still is the human choice to be one's own God to be in control, to control our own life, to be in charge. That will bring us to be religious. And this false religion evolves with our attempts to please and placate God at every turn. See, the sin that I think ultimately that they desired and isn't, isn't anything other than saying, I want to do things my way. I know best. I'm in charge. And if I disagree with what the law teaches, if I disagree now with what Scripture teaches, with what God teaches, well, we'll see. If it makes sense to me, it sounds good. But if it doesn't, yeah, I think I'll put that one on the shelf. It's, I think we're tempted with the same way. Is sin serious? A few years ago, one of my children, who shall remain nameless, had, um, had an incident where they were pulled over by the police for a regular, just a regular check because their inspection sticker I think it was an inspection, or one of those stickers on your car was, uh, was out of date. 
And so they had just gotten the inspection done, but hadn't actually put the sticker on the car. And so uh, they said, you know, I I actually just got the sticker done, you know, just wanted to let you know. And the officer said, okay, well, just bring bring it by. Just bring it by the station quickly, and I'll tear up the ticket and, you know, pretend it never happened. So wanting to save the money and the the hassle of all that, they diligently brought the... uh, uh, inspection certificate and showed it, and they said, okay, fine, no problem. And we thought, oh, no problem. You know, So a couple months go by, and a very official-looking letter comes in the mail from the state. Do not throw this away. This is real. This is not junk mail. Open this now kind of letter. And so uh, this, uh, this individual wasn't available to open the letter at the time, so I opened the letter, and it said, you have violated the law and you haven't shown up to do anything about it, and it is in force on you, and now you owe court costs. I think it was double the original penalty, and if you don't do something about it now, the wrath of the state is coming down upon you. <laughs> Basically, that was it. So, of course, you know, I'm the dad, right? So I'm, my alarm bells go off, and I, uh, I call and get the full story from the, uh, my offending child, and, um, and I went uh, down to the officer's uh, station, the station where this happened because they gave me the full story, and I said, okay, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take care of it. So with a great sense of justice, great sense of, you know, well, rang the bell at the station, got in, explained the whole situation, thinking they would say, ah, oh, no problem, you know, it's our fault, no problem. Oh, no. First thing I said was, show us the paperwork. Well, my, my child didn't keep the paperwork. They thought once she said it was done, they, they disposed of it. Well, that was probably a bad, bad choice. But I said, well, so what can we do? They said, well, you have a choice. You either pay the fine or you don't pay the fine. Okay. Uh, what's the options? Are there any other options? Nope. <laughs> Just two. Okay, I really don't want to pay the fine. It's not fair. It's not right. And they said, well, we don't, we don't know what happened. And so, with my sense of moral high ground, I was like, all right, wrote, wrote the check, gave it, and I, the technical term, the theological term is I, I expiated, I covered the sin. Now, at that point, I got the paperwork, I got everything dealt with, and it was covered and never to be heard from or seen seen again, buried in the ocean, was that sin. Why do I tell you that story? A couple of reasons. First of all, if, if we have sinned against God by what we have done, by what we have left undone, by if we truly believe what the Bible says, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then there is a a consequence of that. And the Bible says the consequence of that is death forever. It is separation from God. Everyone will physically die. These bodies will be transformed. But we who believe, the Bible says, will have resurrected bodies. We will not. We will live again. But that without being expiated, without being covered, without someone paying the debt, the sin remains. 
and that the machinery of the state was going to churn against my child no matter whether I wanted it to or not. And the narrative of this world, going back to what I said earlier, is that sin isn't really a big deal because we're only human. Everybody sins, and that is true. But the narrative of Leviticus and the narrative of the Bible and the Day of Atonement is sin is a huge deal. It separates us from God. It prevents us from having the open fellowship for which he created you and me. And so someone's got to pay the ticket. Now, fortunately, I had enough in the checkbook to pay the ticket. If it had kept doubling and gone up, it would have been maybe beyond my means to pay. The price of sin and the reason all that blood flies over the altar is that the price of it is death. The price of sin is life. And so when the officer said, um, well, you can pay it or you cannot pay it, it's going to cost somebody something. Sin's going to cost somebody something. In the scenario I gave, it cost me sin. It wasn't really sin, but you know what I mean. It cost me. It could have cost her if I decided, well, I'm going to teach her a lesson. I just won't even tell her that it came. And here's the most devastating thing in our world today is that people are being told Like my daughter was told by the officer, no problem. Your sin's been been taken care of. It's canceled. Don't worry about it. That's the narrative the world says. Don't worry about sin. It's some old fundamental, maybe the pilgrims or the Puritans or fundies. They They all worry about sin. But we know. Just be happy. The best we can do is just be filled. Be be yourself. Just be who you are. See, one day a letter is going to come, and one day you're going to get something in the mail that says, the price is to be paid. And you say, why didn't somebody tell me that, can somebody pay the price for this? Because nobody's got enough money in their checkbook to pay unless they're willing to give up their life. Oh, and by the way, they've got to be a perfect sacrifice. They have to be. Could someone perfect Die on your behalf so you don't have to? And see, again, the narrative of our world is, well, I, I, I pay for my own stuff. I pull myself up on my bootstraps. Nobody, nobody should give me any charity or pity or nobody, you know, I'll, I'll do it myself. The Bible says, fine, pay it yourself. With weeping, if you want to pay the price for your own sin, you are permitted to do such. And it's internal separation from God. And Jesus says, I'll pay. I'll open up my checkbook. I'll pay with my blood and my life. And you see, everything in the book of Leviticus is this huge picture pointing to what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. Why do, how can I say that with such assurance? Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Nowhere else in the Bible is one chapter of Scripture so illuminated by another chapter of Scripture. The writer of Hebrews, a book we just finished going through very recently, 
And I'll pick it up, Hebrews 9, verse 6. And you'll recognize the imagery here. These preparations, talking about for the Day of Atonement, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that is the holy place, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, that is the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places isn't yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. That gets into some imagery that it's not difficult to understand, but I don't want to stop to try to explain that. So let's just move on. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They cannot save and they cannot cleanse you and they cannot make you feel better about yourself in the long run. They can only put a a band-aid on the real issues of our life. They deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. That's dealing with those ritual purity sacrifices we talked about last week. But listen to this. Verse 11, chapter 9 of Hebrews. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God goes on to talk about the fact that a will is only enforced when the person dies, and that because Christ died, you and I have been given an incredible treasure. The will has been opened. You who believe are the beneficiaries. In verse 23 of Hebrews 9, I'm going to close with this. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. See, the tent's just a shadow. It's just a copy. It's, it's, it's a visual portrait for an ancient people of what's to come. We live on the other side of the cross. The heavenly things themselves are better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would not have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all, at the end of all ages, to put away all sin by the sacrifice of himself. It is just as it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's why when Jesus died and the veil is split from top to bottom, this is the imagery, this veil, this 
symbolic thing that separates God from man. When Jesus dies, those who believe now are able to freely go in to the temple. We are freely able to be in God's presence without being burned up. We can look into the face of God through Jesus because he's human. He's fully human and fully God. So we get to see God that Moses and Aaron and any high priest could never do. We see him in Christ. I would encourage you to read Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 this week in light of Leviticus because that's, this is exactly what it's speaking of. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain, that is, his own flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let's, let this be our benediction. Let us draw near with a true faith in full true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and what it said conscience could never be cleansed by that but we can be clean you don't have to pay for your own sins you don't have to make things right with god you don't have to be better you don't have to have a quiet time every day or attend church every sunday to be pleasing to god You are pleasing to God if you fall under his blood and accept his sacrifice and believe it. Hebrews 10.14 says this, By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Because you are right with him doesn't make you perfect. You can sin boldly knowing that you're forgiven boldly. The Luther quote says, look, we're going to fall. We don't have to hide it. We in our shame hide our sin. And it's created all sorts of evil. Bring your sin. Bring the places you fall short. Boldly proclaim that and boldly proclaim that there's a Savior who's worthy to have saved. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you were both the lamb sacrificed Lord, like that sacrificial goat given on behalf of the people, so were you. And Lord, you were the goat that lives and takes away and carries away the sin of the people far from the camp. Isaiah said, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter says he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness As far as the east is from the west, you've buried our sin. You've taken it away. Lord, the symbolism couldn't be clearer. That you have made us right. You've taken every sin we ever committed before, and you will carry away the sins we've done if we trust in you, if we repent, if we continually turn to you. Lord, and we can live clean. Help us not believe the lie that everything's okay. There is no sin, that there is no need for anyone else to sacrifice, that we just do the best we can, Lord. The, the end of that, because your Scripture teaches us what really is, not what some wish to be, that the wages of sin is death, and you have borne that death for us. So help us to know how to appropriate that, how to live, Lord, in light of that death and the new life that springs forth. Lord, teach us from this book of Leviticus how we take your holiness, how we see you and operate 
Lord, to become more growing to be a holy people serving a holy God. Lord, you came the first time, cleansed from sin, and Lord, we look to you coming again to make all things right. We believe this, O Lord, and we ask you to make us your own. Create in us identity as the people of God, even as you did so many years ago in the desert. Create in us, Lord, a church that identifies and knows that we serve and are filled by the Holy Spirit to serve a risen Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.